Welcome to the Total Car Score podcast, bringing you the world of cars from inside the car. And now your hosts, Carl Brower, Lauren Fix, and Javier Mota. Well, welcome everybody to the new Total Car Score podcast with my friends, Lauren Fix and Carl Brower. How are you, Lauren? I'm great. I'm up here in Buffalo and getting ready for the cold weather. But you know what? We get cars year round and I'm really excited to share our experiences. Yeah, and Carl is uh, over in California. How are you, Carl? I'm doing great. You know, it's uh, easier to see the sun these days than a couple of weeks ago with the fires, so I'm happy. Well, yeah, I mean, we have fires, we have hurricanes, we have, uh, well, uh, over there in Buffalo, you don't have much of those things, Lauren, but like you had the pandemic, so you live in New York, you went through the whole, the worst thing of the pandemic up there. And through these six months, we've been working on, on this project, so we're really happy to introduce it to you. And uh, a lot of things have changed personally, professionally for the three of us and like in the industry too. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? Uh, so Lauren, go ahead and, and, and give the audience a general idea of what we're going to do here. Okay. Uh, well, Carl and Javier and I are all members of the North American Car, Truck and Utility Vehicle of the Year jury. Uh, I've passed president and been on the board. Carl is currently on the board and Javier will probably someday be on the board. Uh, but together we all have many, many years of experience. I've been in the auto industry for over 30 years and have been driving, racing, uh, restoring and working in the auto industry as the car coach. I was Oprah's auto expert and I'm happy to bring some of our experiences and um, what we see in cars. It's a little different than what you might see just on the surface and uh, give you some information because knowledge is power. Exactly. And Carl, you also be, I mean, you've been on the juror for long, longer than the three of us. And you also have a lot of experience and we too, you and me together, we had some fun experiences throughout the years driving fun cars around the world. No, it's been great. I've been doing this for about to be 25 years and in the process have been around the world, driven a lot of cars, gone on a lot of adventures, including uh, you and I driving a 300 uh, Gullwing Mercedes that was probably worth about a million plus dollars at the time uh, on the wrong side of the road in England, which was fun and challenging, but we both survived. Uh, but uh, a lot of consumer work uh, for Edmonds and Auto Trader and Kelly Blue Book. And you talked about some of the upheaval we've had this year with pandemics and, you know, weather and fires out here in California. And of course, professionally, I uh, switched from uh, Kelly and Auto Trader. And now I'm an executive analyst currently at iccars.com. But it's been an adventure, 25 years in this industry and uh, seen a lot, have a lot to, uh, to say, a lot of perspective to share. And I've also been in the industry for 20 years now. It's uh, really incredible that time has gone so fast. And I mean, reality, I, I just look back and it's like, wow, where, where did this two, 20 years go? But anyway, here we are working through the pandemic, working remotely. Uh, we haven't had a chance to see each other in the past six months, obviously, while before this, we were like together almost every week, right, Lauren? We would ride together sometimes too. We didn't have as exciting adventures as you and Carl, but I've been in a couple of wrecks with other journalists. Let's see, I've had stuff stolen out of my vehicle in Spain. So yeah, we've, we've had some interesting experiences. I think the one thing that, uh, you know, through all the pandemic and everything in the car industry has changed a lot and what we all do has changed a lot. But I, I think if we can help people, I think that's really what this is all about. And to give you that feeling that, you know, you don't just walk in there and feel like, oh boy, here we go again and, and take that all away and, and have a lot of fun along. We have a lot of fun laughing together. That is for sure. 
Yeah, our intention here is, uh, again, like we are experts at some levels and we cover a lot of ground, but uh, our intention is more to give the, the, the experience to the audience because like we have an incredible opportunity to drive pretty much one, two or three or more new cars every week. While most of the people, I mean, what do you think, Carl, like most people in their lives, how many cars do they actually drive? Well, you know, if you're a New Yorker, you might not drive any at all, right? But I think I think the average person maybe drives and owns 10 to 15 cars through the course of their life. And uh, like you said, that's how many we'll often get in and out of in a month, depending on uh, what month it is and how many cars we're evaluating for North American Car and Truck of the Year, as an example. I think I own more cars than that in total. Wait a minute. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you currently have more than 15 cars, right? So, uh, and I know I did a log like... A long t- I audited how many cars I'd owned, and this was probably 13 years ago, I remember. And uh, at that point in time, it was, I think, in the 30s. Yeah, it was in the 30s cars that I had owned, and that wasn't including motorcycles, which would be another, like, you know, add on another 10 plus. So, uh, yeah, we, we have a lot of personal interest in cars, which I think, truthfully, if you're going to be a genuine automotive journalist, you have to have a genuine passion for the content. You can't just do it as a way to make money. You have to kind of live and breathe it. And I think the three of us do. Yeah, I agree with that. Lauren, on top of that, you have some engineering experience. So you're like, probably, I mean, with all due respect to Carl, but I think you were the more qualified <laughs> of the three of us because of that. <laughs> yeah, well, I used to design and build braking systems, suspension components, restored cars. I race cars. I actually just sold my race car partly because of the pandemic. Uh, an 850 horsepower Jaguar Trans Am car, historically significant car. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things, you know, once you start working on them, and I started as a kid, uh, you you fall in love with the business. But I think the biggest part of this business that ties us together and hopefully ties the listener together with us is that passion. Because you can meet anyone from any walk of life, any history. If you love cars, you can start a conversation. I have had my best friends are from all walks of life. And we just love, we call it bench racing or just talking about cars. And, and that passion is what you don't see in any other industry. It's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, you could be in, I don't know, pick whatever industry and yeah, maybe you have some friends, but this is a common bond. This is a family. To me, like one of the most interesting parts of the industry is also the, the manufacturing, the, the planning, the, all the work that goes behind the car, because most people will get into a car, turn on I mean, like unlock the car, open the door, turn on the car, turn on the radio. They don't realize how much work it goes behind that. And to me, I mean, sometimes I say it's like a miracle. Obviously, there's a lot of work. There's no miracles here. And nobody is, it's, nothing is given to chance. I mean, every everything is planned to the most, in most cases, at least <laughs> the most small detail. And that to me is also a fascinating part of the industry. The only thing, Carl? Yeah, it is. And I think there's a lot of people, like you said, that do not understand what goes into making a car, you know, and it's not just four wheels and a body and a drivetrain, you know, the the engineering and the lead time, you know, it's multiple years between uh, kind of conceptualizing a car and then producing the car and selling the car. And uh, all of us have probably seen where you see a vehicle hit the market and you're like, oh, just a little too late. You know, you know that the car was being planned three years earlier because by the time it comes out, the market is totally shifted and the vehicle doesn't have much appeal anymore. Uh, and that's really risky. I mean, can you imagine anyone having a job where it's like you have to do something and it's got to land in a market that's ready for it. And by the way, that's three years from now. So you may have some level of predictability that you think you've got, but at the end of the day, 
you're building something that in three years you hope resonates and you're, there's really no guarantee until that time arrives. And we've seen that a lot. You know, think about the Thunderbird. The Thunder, we all had the big hype on the Thunderbird. Had to have it. We we were so excited. And, and there's been a lot of other vehicles too, but this one just happens to pop into my head. I mean, think about how much they hyped it, like the Camaro and everything and a bunch of other cars. And then when it finally shows up, we're like, Bleh, it just falls. But then there's other vehicles like the Bronco. We've all been excited to see it. And now we're now it's here for the Bronco Sport. I know everything's kind of slowed down because of COVID, but... I'm really excited to see the two-door and four-door Bronco. I think that's going to be pretty hot. If we're just talking about Ford specifically, but every brand has had some pretty exciting cars coming out. I don't think you are the only one excited about the Bronco. How many how many reservations we were talking about the last time? Like over 200,000, I think, right? It's in the hundreds of thousands, yeah. And I was actually just talking to a reporter recently at the Detroit Free Press basically saying, is there any risk about having that kind of demand, that kind of buildup? And it's so funny what you just said, Lauren, because what I said to her was, well, you got to watch it because I my experience is that that intense, rapid interest in a car can often be followed by the same uh, speed of disinterest or lack of interest if anything goes wrong. You know, those things that burn so hot will often burn out quickly too. Now, if the car is really well executed, it's uh, largely inoculated uh, against that, you know, and it won't, and that won't happen. But the Thunderbird, hot car, everyone was excited, had some retro styling. And I remember specifically being in a Ford dealer, picking up another vehicle, a Bullet Mustang I was buying at the time. And just the two guys were, you know, I was looking at the car and they just said to each other, not even thinking about me or what I was hearing, so how many orders have you had fall off for the Thunderbird in the last like six months? Yeah, that's really unfortunate. All ours have fallen off too. So I heard two guys right there on the front lines talking about the complete, you know, uh, fall off of interest and demand for that car. And Ford had trouble launching it. It was delayed. There were production issues. So hopefully that doesn't happen with the Bronco. I think there's so much interest in that car. It's not going to evaporate, even if it was slightly delayed. But no manufacturer should ever be testing the resolve of their fan base by uh, having problems at launch time. That's for sure. But look at the Corvette. That was the other way around. There was a lot of hype. There were delays that were way outside their control. Uh, there was a there was a strike and, of course, COVID and everything. But they are, I would have to say, and I, I said this in my review of the Corvette on my Car Coach Reports channel, that I think it's the best vehicle General Motors has ever built on the new 2020 Corvette. Well, that's the big news of the week. Not the Corvette or the Thunderbird, but like Carl, Lauren, and me are launching this podcast. So we want your feedback. Please write to us through social media. We have a Facebook page already. We've got a Twitter page. So we're going to hear from you and get your questions on specific things that you want about any cars. And most likely we'll be on that car at some point. Speaking of that, in the next segment, we're going to talk a car that I think is bringing a lot of excitement, the G80 the 2021 Genesis G80. That's a correct full name. So when we come back, we're going to talk about that because we had a virtual presentation this morning. Uh, and um, we're going to, well, we're going to talk about the car when we come back. And uh, we were talking about new cars, excitement about the launching of new models and all that. And in the case of Genesis, it's a five-year-old brand that uh, has created a lot of splash since it launched, like again, five years ago when it spit off of Hyundai as a luxury brand. 
And today, you both, uh, Carol and Lauren, and myself here in Miami, we all had our separate uh, pandemic or whatever you want to call it experience with that car. So, Carl, tell me what were your first impressions of the car? I think you have seen it before, but I think like today was like a more more broad uh, explanation of everything that is in that car. Yeah, I think the car's got a lot of presence, and you can't know that till you are. In, it, in its presence so you can see it in person. So it looked good in the photos. It sounded like it had good specs and pricing over the last six months as information has kind of trickled out on it. But to see it in person is always the uh, final litmus test, as we all know. And it looks good. It has got a presence. Uh, they had a great way of des describing it in the um, virtual reveal that we all did since we can't be around each other physically. But we were all watching on our screens and the designers talked about that kind of consistent, one constant parabolic line that makes up the kind of front roof and tail end and it all, all kind of fits into a consistent arch. It's very much like, uh, I'd almost want to say like a C-Class or an Audi with that kind of, you know, cohesive look to it. Um, and, and it's got that. And I always like that. And I appreciate that in cars. And you can tell that the designers didn't just design it, you know, kind of piecemeal. They made sure every line fits with every other line. And you'd think that'd be normal and natural, we've all seen cars out there that don't look like they were designed very well and that they don't fit together very well. So my first impression on the looks is strong. And again, uh, a lot of value for the money, what you're paying, the performance it's offering. Uh, I'm anxious to, to get more seat time in it. I just got here and I still barely had a time to really dig into it, but all the things I've seen so far impress me. Yeah, you mentioned Audi and Mercedes-Benz cues in the design, and you know why, right, Lauren? Genesis has uh, become what it is now in just five years because they have hired people from all those other companies, not only for design, but engineering, marketing, and everything else, right? Yeah, I think that's what you know makes the Genesis lineup itself so successful. I mean, when they hit the marketplace, we all kind of looked at each other and went, oh boy, Hyundai's going to do a luxury line just like everyone else. This is going to be ho-hum. But they really hit the market strongly. The G90 luxury, G80 and G80 Sport, which I truly liked, and the G70, which was the 2019, oh, 28, no, 2019 North American Car of the Year. Uh, and, and that was huge. And that really made a statement for the brand. They started hiring away some designers and some engineers that were in charge of the BMW M line, some Audi people, Mark Del Russo, who's running it now. And that's a big statement because they now realize that if you're going to make a play in the luxury or luxury performance market, you better come on strong. You better deliver the best at the best price. And Hyundai is very good at doing that. I mean, it's very easy to look at the Palisade, um, which is a three row SUV and they've had phenomenal success. And the thing is they give it all to you as a customer at a much lower price. And I'm sure that all the competitors, and there's a lot of them, are very aware of what they're putting out, but they've really stepped up their game and everything. And if you're thinking about, you know, do I go German? Do I go with the Japanese car? You know, maybe a Jaguar XF. You start looking at that G80 and you realize it's impressive. I, I picked mine up this morning uh, from the truck and my husband was with me and he's because he had to get over there and he says, wow, he goes, this is really impressive. I mean, though he works as an engineer in a different aspect of the auto industry to impress someone who restores cars professionally um, was it uh, was a surprise to hear that. I agree. I, and I think the car's got a lot of potential. I think we can all recognize that uh, it's going to be a strong runner for the North American car truck and SUV. It'll be in the uh, car field, obviously, but 
that brand won just a couple of years ago. And uh, so they've already set a precedent and I'm sure they're anxious to see if they can win again this year. Well, the Koreans love awards. It's amazing. Uh, Kia's won some awards. They went with a Telluride last year, well, for 2020 for their SUV. But boy, they are so excited and they're so passionate about selling vehicles in North America. And I think that's important because you know, some people are like, yeah, we sell cars in North America. No, no, no. They're seriously a passionate group of people. And that, that makes the vehicles even more exciting, I think. What do you think, Javier? Well, yeah, it's a fantastic car, definitely. And uh, one of the things that also impresses me about not only the Genesis brand, but also Kia and Hyundai, the whole Kia group, the Korean car industry, is how well they have taken advantage of the resources that they get basically from the government, if we are honest, because the government supports them a lot, gives them a lot of incentives, but they have taken advantage of that. So like, I guess it's fair game. If you have some circumstances that work in your favor, you should take advantage of that and, and work with that. And that way, that's the way they can offer, as you were saying, Lauren, cars with a lot of equipment, like with a lot of options that other brands charge you an arm and a leg for that. And, I, and you see it, the difference between a Mercedes-Benz and Audi BMW with the Genesis, and in some cases is ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. And then you start adding other options and it's like $5,000 for this, $10,000 for that. And that's one of the big, big uh, factors that I think is going to be uh, the reasons of the early success for Hyundai, from Genesis, I'm sorry, because five years is nothing in the automotive industry. But what is going to set them up for like a really long run uh, in the future, right, Carl? Yeah, no, they've established already in a short time, like you said, um, a real following uh, with some very successful models. And I think a lot of us were wondering what they were thinking when they launched the brand without any SUVs. Because even five years ago, it was obvious that SUVs were the hot ticket. And here comes a new luxury brand from Hyundai without a single SUV in the lineup. And we're, I think all three of us and everyone else in the industry was like, what are they doing? Well, they made it work. They still had successful sales. They could only compete in the sedan categories, but they did compete and they competed well. Their sales are good. We were hearing that this morning. And now this year comes uh, the SUVs. So they're going to finally have a full lineup and um, I'm sure their sales and market share will keep going up. And you're right. They've got some help from the government, but the truth is that's not so unique to them. The uh, Japanese were doing that too. The Japanese for decades have been helping their uh, car companies with various government incentives to make sure they can compete on the world stage and um, also gives them some pricing and, and resource advantages compared to, uh, well, for instance, our domestic automakers here in the U.S. And also, I think the pandemic or they're taking advantage of the pandemic because obviously their dealership network is not that established um, yet in the U.S. They, they actually struggle a lot at the very beginning with it. Like they have actually legal problems with it and some states and all that. But I think the pandemic is going to help them because, again, only a five-year-old company that they're like pretty much setting up everything from scratch. So like the new the, the new trend of like doing most of the transaction online and doing a lot of concierge services, like bringing you the car to your house, your office or wherever you want it. I think that's another another huge advantage for them because, again, they're early in the game and they can adjust quickly. As like if you will ask uh, General Motors or Ford or Lincoln, I mean, any other brand to do a change in their process, process, it will be like incredibly hard to do the right car. No, it would. They would have a lot of trouble being that nimble and that quick. And uh, I think when you look at uh, the Koreans, I think what you see is a lot of 
learnings. They already were able to, like both of you said, watch the U.S. automakers, the European automakers, and then the Japanese automakers. And they basically said, all right, we see where what they did that was smart. We see what they did that wasn't so smart. And we're going to you know, fix what they uh, didn't. And we're going to maximize what they did right. And that's why they're so successful in the last 10 years, especially. I, I, you know, I, I think they entered this market 25 years ago and they were, you know, eh, they were doing okay, had some product, but it was low, low cost, but it didn't actually uh, set the world on fire in terms of its quality and performance. And I think they just kind of redoubled their efforts in the last 10 plus years. It's been a whole nother story. You know, it's funny you say that, Carl, because one of the things that I noticed originally when Kia hit the market is the Japanese looked at the domestics that had taken over the market and they said, you know, what are they doing wrong? Well, they're not packaging things. So the Germans are everything like you buy the car and then you piecemeal each type of accessory you want. It gets very expensive. With the domestics, you know, Ford, GM and Chrysler or, or FCA started doing the same thing. The Japanese saw that, assessed it. They said, we're going to offer things in packages. When you buy this trim level, you get all this safety all standard across the board. And they started packaging it in a better way. And that helped get, get them some traction. When the Koreans came on board, they looked at all the markets and said, what are they doing wrong? Why is there not a longer warranty? And they've really been strong with the 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty. And I think that gave them really serious traction. And now they've taken it to a whole new level by hitting market segments that they know are really unobtainable if you're just doing the same thing by coming in at a lower price point and offering even more with a long warranty and including maintenance. I mean, they've really, really stepped up their game. And I, I'm sure that everybody else is very aware of it. And they know that they're going to start chasing them down. Okay, Lauren, uh, you've seen the car. You listened to all the executives and the engineers, designers, and all of that. Okay, tell me something that you didn't like in the car or like wasn't that great, if there's anything. Well, you know, in this price category, you're looking at a vehicle fully loaded at like $67,000. I wish, I really wish, and, and everybody knows me knows this, I wish they had the diesel engine here. You can even do a hybrid diesel engine, which they're doing that in Europe, but that's not available here. We get the four-cylinder or the six-cylinder. And I think it would be nice to have like massaging seats as an option. I'm not saying that's critical, but when you're going into that, price category. You're going to go up against the Audi A6, the BMW 5 Series, the Lexus ES, the Jaguar F, uh, XF. Those cars are really well sorted out. These vehicles really have like everything you want. And although you can buy all these options, they have to be very careful to package it properly because I, I really love the big screen and I love the technology. I just noticed a few things as I was driving it, like the steering wheel needs to be a flat bottom steering wheel, sort of to blend in with what the competitors are doing. Yeah, but Carl, uh, speaking of, you know, of the diesels, uh, you live in California, and actually in the last segment of this episode, we're going to talk about that, how uh, California is going to try to restrict the gas engine cars. The diesels pretty much are done in the U.S., even though there's still a few options. But, I mean, that's pretty... I mean, there's no future for that if, if because what California said, 2035 for no more gas cars. So the diesel, like you're not going to put a diesel car for like the next five, 10 years if they're going to ban them, right? Yeah. And it's unfortunate. You know, I think the diesel had a lot of potential and uh, it fought against technology to be able to be clean enough. You know, it was, it was diesels were hot and then they went away and the technology got better and they were able to keep up again with emissions demands and then emission demands got more stringent. And that's when some of the car companies got a little creative on how they defined how they were meeting the, the emissions. Um, and I think now we're at this point where the image of diesel has been so damaged that as a private consumer, 
it's tough for anyone to buy them, even though the three of us and anyone who knows their engineering knows that they still offer a lot of advantages in terms of the torque and the, and the fuel efficiency that they offer. But I don't think you're ever going to overcome that image that they've got now, at least on the consumer level. They still make great sense on like, you know, heavy duty trucks and that kind of thing. And they still thankfully are available, at least on those. But uh, as you said, we're going to get into the next segment and talk about it's hard to even uh, have certain people approve regular gasoline engines, let alone diesels. Well, I have to say it's pretty frustrating to see that California is trying to make the rules for the other 49 states. Now, we know that you have some opinions as well, and you've got some vehicles that you want us to talk about, as well as things that are going on in the industry. I mean, literally anything from leasing, buying, where's a good deal? What should I look at? What should I avoid? And Carl and Javier and I really have a lot of experience. We're happy to help you. So make sure to reach out to us on our social media that will be listed in the description. And when we come back, we are going to talk about something I am furious about. Stare it with us. back in the last segment of this uh, first real episode of the Total Car Score podcast that, as I said, we've been working on this for a, a few weeks, almost months now, and we, we another show, maybe we're going to share some of those experiences, like all the troubles that we have gone through. I mean, it's not easy to create this thing, especially remotely, uh, even though there's a great technology to do it. I mean, we... We have to, I have to be honest, we have some trouble in the, in the part of coming here, but uh, that's for another time. Uh, but Carl, uh, let's start with you since you are in California. California recently announced that by the year 2035, if I'm correct, they're going to ban the sale of new gas engine cars. 2035 seems far away, but it's only, what, 15 years from now? So that in car terms in car industry term production terms that's like two or three cycles of a new car so i mean a lot has to change for the automotive industry to adopt to that but maybe a lot more is going to change in california to really implement that or not at all um, what do you think tell us from like your california perspective well, you know, it's very popular in California to, to uh, imagine that uh, you're on the cutting edge. And uh, this state is always way ahead of everyone else. And if you don't think so, just ask any of the politicians. They'll make sure to tell you that. Uh, I'm not sure I always agree with them, but whatever. In this case, we've got uh, Gavin Newsom uh, telling uh, the rest of the country and the rest of the world, we're going to lead by banning the sale of electric vehicles by 2035 in this state. Now, there's a couple issues with that statement. First, oh, gas cars. You said electric, I think, right? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Sorry. We're going to ban the sale of, of gasoline cars. We're going to, we're basically, we're going to ban the sale of all new cars at, in 2035, except electric vehicles by 2035. The problem, the first problem with that statement is I'm not sure he can make that decision by himself. I don't think a governor by himself, the, the, even in California, it's sometimes hard to tell, but in California, I believe it's still a democracy. There's still a legislature and there still has to be like agreement among, among more than just a single person. Uh, you know, he can make a declaration about an emergency and all, but I don't think he can make a declaration about uh, an entire division of like the economy and how it's going to work in terms of personal transportation. The second problem is, of course, that Anyone who's lived here for any length of time knows this state has trouble powering the air conditioning units in houses when it gets hot. 
and we're already having rolling brownouts and have, have have had those ever since I moved here 25 years ago on a regular basis. So if the grid is already overtaxed by climate control in houses, how are you going to add, I don't know, 16 million cars? How many cars are operating in the state on a given year? Millions. And all of a sudden, they're all supposed to be getting charged off the electric grid that can't handle the current demands without that many cars being charged. So two big problems. And then, of course, the third one just being whether or not the either the technology or the um, buying buying public is ready for it. You know, uh, I keep telling people that when they say, how come EVs are 2% of the national market and 5% of the California market is because, well, because they cost a lot and there's uh, not very many options that are very appealing to a lot of people. And uh, it takes anywhere from 20 minutes to 20 hours, depending on what, what your option is for recharging to fill them up. In other words, they have a lot of disadvantages compared to internal combustion cars. And when all of those, not one, not two, all of those, when they're as cheap as an internal combustion equivalent, when they have as much or more range than an internal combustion equivalent, and when they are as quick to refill as an, in, uh, an internal combustion equivalent, then they'll sell like internal combustion cars sell. Until then, they'll sell at a lesser rate. And, and in this case, again, even in California, they're 5% of the market and they're 2% overall. So we got a long way to go before 100% of the people buying new cars in California will buy an electric vehicle. Well, you know, what infuriates me about this is it's like putting the cart in front of the horse. Now, I'm, I won't be political, so I'll try to give you the facts so you can look them up yourself if you don't believe us. And what Carl says is 100% true. But on top of that, these batteries have rare earth minerals in them. And that means there's a shortage of them. So the materials that are in these batteries, any electric vehicle battery, they're huge deep cycle batteries, and they, they have to hold the power. You've got cobalt, cadmium, lithium, mercury, and a rare, rare metal called neodymium. So if you take those are just some of the some of the main ones, they do not mine these in the US or anywhere in North America. And the reason they don't is because they're so hazardous to humans. So where are they being mined? Currently, it's in the Congo exclusively and every single mine. And again, just this past week, uh, China just purchased the last of the mines they didn't own, and they now own all the mines. So we will no longer be beholden to the Middle East based on the governors of California's perspective, but will be beholden to China. And that's probably not a good idea. I don't think it, wherever you stand politically, I'm sure you can figure that out. That's probably not wise. So what are the other options? Yes, you could probably create a solid state battery. Yes, there's all this great technology, but the problem is all these batteries being produced. And that also includes it's in solar panels. They get stacked up in salvage yards because they're not recyclable. It's sort of along the lines of saying, Here's a birthday cake. Can you take the eggs out of it? No, you can't. It's part of the mix. That's called a cake, actually, the batteries. They cannot take it out. It's not recyclable. So this is a problem. So we're going to have a hazard to our environment down the road because we can't send it to the moon or put it in the ocean or bury it in the land and there's no recycle. And, and because of you adding all that in, when you look at the footprint, the carbon footprint of, let's just say, an H1 hum Hummer that you like see in the military, that 10-year footprint is substantially less in carbon footprint than that of an electric vehicle. And so people think that they're going with their greener choice. And I, I get that we all have our own personal perspectives on this, but we really have to look at that as a piece of the puzzle. And then of course, the fact that the grid is old, like Carl said, and if there's not enough power right now and they're shutting down nuclear power plants, where are you getting the power from? That would be coal and of course, natural gas. So what happens from that point forward you're going to need wind and solar. Well, that's only about 
4% at its maximum capacity, plus there's not enough charging stations. I mean, you start looking at all the variables and you start thinking, well, wait a minute, I guess that wasn't thought of. So what happened in China, they had originally said, we're, we're going to go all electric by 2050, every single vehicle, that's it. And they realized their grid wasn't strong enough. They didn't have enough rare earth minerals. And of course, they prefer to sell it to us at a higher price that they decided to go with something called blue gas, which is a compressed natural gas with hydrogen in it. It is a new process. They put $66 billion into the investment of this. And they're one of the first companies or countries to do it, let alone companies that are based in China. And they have the first fuel station in Shanghai, the largest one in the world. And it will allow you to charge a battery because it works off of a different type of material, sort of like hydrogen does. And also with compressed natural gas, you could get combustion engines to run on that, and it's cleaner, and there's an unlimited supply. So there's a lot of things, and what frustrates me is it's easy to make a mandate. This is not a, a request from Governor Newsom. This is a mandate, and although he may or may not be in office, it's concerning that who's going to pay this bill when we're already being overtaxed, especially in California. You mentioned the uh, the hydrogen cars, and I remember going to auto shows 15 years ago, at least. And like actually seeing like the slogan from the, I think it was a BMW 7 Series hydrogen car that said, we are ready for wherever you are ready. Speaking about the the infrastructure and the legislation and all that. And that's 15 years ago. And that's what we're talking about ahead for that ban in California. So my prediction is that it's not going to happen. It's going to have a lot of changes along the way. And Carl there in California is going to tell us like maybe 15 years we're still doing this. <laughs> what? Who was right and who was wrong? Right, Carl? So yeah, we've seen this for years. We've seen them trying to tell us you know, what we're going to buy in the state of California. We've seen it not work You know, when they were having this as little as 5 or 10% zero emission vehicle mandates 25 years ago. And the, the time frame would come up and it would be clear that's not going to happen. None of the manufacturers could live up to that requirement, and they had to push it back five years. Five years later, well, we still can't do it. Five more years go by. So we'll see the same thing. We'll get to 2033, and they'll be like, you know, 18%, which, by the way, would be a three times over a three times increase from the 5% they're at now. But I'm, I, I'd be surprised if through natural, the organic natural development of EVs and science, if we get to 20% market share in the uh, state of California by 2035. And there's going to be 80 left, 80% 80 left to go, and it'll be 2033, and everyone will say, hmm, maybe that no no gasoline car sold by 2035 thing isn't going to work, and they'll reevaluate. So it made a great statement, all sorts of headlines. Newsom looked like, you know, the hero to everyone who wants to uh, see California lead the way into the, into the you know, promised land of a green future. Then there's reality, and uh, we'll see. We'll see what 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 happens in 15 years. Well, it's going to be really interesting, and we'll see what happens in the next week when we come back with Total Car Score podcast. So, so this was our first real uh, episode. I will be here with you, and again, please send send us our your questions. Lauren and Carl are going to give their social media hashtags and all that, so you can connect with them. I'm Javier Mota. I'm at all the platforms with that name, and so look for me. Instagram, uh, Twitter. Facebook and it's just my my name nothing creative K A R L B R A U E R at Carl Brower and I'm on all forms of social media at Lauren Fix it's L A U R E N F I X yes that's my real last name and you can also find me on YouTube at Car Coach Reports and of course online everywhere excellent we'll we'll talk to you next week thank you for listening thank you for listening. 
For more, check us out online at TotalCarscore.com.